House of Mystery presents Inside Writing, the radio show where authors discuss their writing process in all genres. Uh, today we have this uh, uh, great writer. I've been uh, watching his stuff for a while. Um, the, the newest book is called Working Class Hero. That's the autobiography of a superhuman, and the author is James Robert Smith. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us today. No, no trouble. I'm glad to do it. Well, uh, so so Bob, let's let's talk about your writing. This is a really interesting concept. This this book I was I was looking at. Um, you know, where, where do you get your ideas for writing? It's kind of sci-fi, I guess you would call it. Yeah, um, well, well the, the idea for this came from just an entire lifetime of being surrounded by comic books. My, um, my parents owned used bookstores. They opened the first one in 1965, and my dad used to buy comic books for two cents apiece, <laughs> or he would trade them two for one. And you have to understand, this was 1965. And the comic books just poured into the store, you know, first by the hundreds, then by the thousands. Within six months, he had like 150,000 comic books. He didn't know what to do with them all. Um, I think by the end of the first year, he had 250,000 comic books. We had to rent a warehouse across the street from his store in Atlanta, and he hired college students to go in and sort them alphabetically or sometimes alphabetically sometimes in types of comics so you know I was I lived the life (laughs) dream life of a comic book fan and you have you know in 1965 a comic book from the 1940s wasn't that unusual for my dad to run across, so I got to read, you know, anything and everything you can imagine that most people just dream about getting their hands on. Wow! So, yeah. working class hero, came, it came out of the Silver Age comics that I enjoyed so much when I was a kid, from mainly from Marvel comics. All the stuff created and written by, you know, Jack Kirby and Steve Ditko, and that's kind of. The atmosphere I was trying to recreate in in that first working class hero novel. So, do you make it sound um, like if someone, if I'm reading working class hero, do I feel like I'm reading it like a cartoon? Like a, I don't want to say it that way, like a comic book. Does it have that sort of feel? Um, yeah, I think you know that's what I was shooting for. You know, you, you have your you know, not really an origin story because they all all the heroes in my book have the same origin. It's a virus that they get. It's as an adult, they're not born with it. You get this virus, and it you know transforms you. Different people it affects differently, and um, but you have all of these different superheroes. There aren't very many of them. That they're not like all over the place. It's very rare malady. But I tried to get in all of the the tropes that you get with, a, you know, Silver Age comic books. 
<laughs> so what what do your superheroes do? Like what what's their uh, what kind of things do you have them able to do? Well, you know, they're everything you can imagine from, <laughs> you know, from that period of, of comic book superheroes. But um, when you contract the virus and it affects you and turns you into a superhuman, you're supposed to immediately contact the government. And the minute you do, they come and get you. And you're given... Well, you're not given a choice at all. You're you're under government sanction at that point, and they tell you what you're going to do and how you're going to do it. And they try to collect up the heroes into different groups in different regions of the country. And the people who don't do this, the heroes who don't cooperate, they go underground and essentially become hunted. So they're villains of one type or another, whether intentionally or unintentionally. And uh, so that's where you get the, the conflict that I set up. But then I added in another conflict in the book where these superhumans show up who aren't or don't seem to be people who were, you know, afflicted by the virus. And um, they end up being either actually, you never find out, of course, I'm going to leave it open. And, uh, but they are seen to be gods. So then we have the the conflict between the heroes and these people purporting to be gods. Yeah, I see. You say Roman gods. Right, the Roman gods. Yeah. Wow. So it, does it read, like, do you have an underlying theme as well? Like, cause in a lot of the old comic books, as in, like, these uh, superheroes, um, it's always good versus evil and, and things like that. Is it sort of the same feel to it? Uh, it's not really so much good versus evil, but it's... And, and this will build up as I come out with more novels because I wrote it as a series, and the, the next one should be out pretty soon. And um, But it's the theme is... The, your average person versus authority, which everybody has to deal with. I mean, no matter what you are in life, you have to deal with authority. And that's the tension in, in the book, and that was the message that I want to carry through the, the entire series, is how people deal with authority. Because these superheroes in, in the book, they're powerful. They're, you know, they're scary individuals. But the military is, is more powerful than they are, and they have to watch what they do and they have to toe the line just like we do so that's the, mm. that's the theme I was hunting for with the concept of the book and then going forward with, with the next one which I'm hoping will be out in about two months so are, are you making the um, how, do, how do I say this now so do you think so is authority kind of a, a scary or bad figure not series? necessarily. It's just, you know, how, especially these people, how do they deal with authority when they're, they're bursting with abilities and powers that most people don't have at their beck and call, but they still have to do what they're told to do, just like we do. But it's not necessarily, it's just harder for them, let's put it that way. 
you know, if you can um, pick up a 30-ton bulldozer and toss it across, you know, a football field, how likely are you to do what you're told to do? You're probably going to do it, but it's going to be more difficult, let's say. So that was one of the general ideas that I was trying to wield as I told the story, how these people deal with authority. <laughs> that should do well, I think, in these times. Um, so, so now your characters, the actual superheroes, the working class heroes and stuff, how do you develop them and where do they come from? Are they um, from people you know, from family, from oh, people you Well, yeah, they're, they're people I know and, um, you know, people I've met, people I've known, I pulled physical attributes and personality attributes from different people. And um, then since I've, I've been a working class person my whole life, I've, you know, I don't have a college education. Uh, you know, I don't have any marketable skills of being a writer. I've been a laborer all my life. And uh, so that's that's another thrust of the book. All of these people generally are from the working class. You know, they're dock workers and truck drivers and ditch diggers and grocery store clerks and waiters and waitresses. And that's where they all came from. So that, that was, you know, that's another strong aspect of the book that I wanted to accentuate and will going forward. Even the villains are like that, you know. They're just, they're just, they before they contracted the virus, they're just average Joes. Oh, so in a way, you've put yourself into to all of the characters. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, part uh -huh. of, Probably part of the influence of writing these characters was um, the same thing that was going through whenever you read um, what influenced Robert E. Howard when he was creating all of the weird characters he created. You know, Conan and Brain McMorrin and Cormac McCarthy and, um, you know, all of his Western characters, his detectives. They're, they're just people that he knew and people like himself. So I think that, you know, that was a big influence on me. I used the same um, reason for writing as, as guys, as a pulp writer like Robert E. Howard did. So, you know, I, I have to say, so if you uh, go out to a, a store, a grocery store, and and uh, you, you run across some rude person or something like that. Do you take that character and kill them? <laughs> <laughs> Not really. I mean, that that was another. That's another point that's taken in the book. Is you know they they can't do that. They oh. you know that's they can't do it. I mean, uh, they will immediately find themselves behind the nuclear eight ball or whatever it takes to put them down if they step out of line in that way. So, no, they're not going to. But, of course, they're not. You know, once they that happens to them, they're no longer, you know, they're no longer ditch diggers. They're no longer 
grocery store cashiers, et cetera, they, they, from that moment forward, they work for Uncle Sam. That Uncle Sam gives them something to do, pays them handsomely to keep them doing what needs to be done per the government. And the government is not is not a bad guy. I'm not saying you know that's not what I'm setting up in in the books whatsoever. It's just the fact of having to deal with authority, and in this case, the authority comes from the same place we find authority in in our government. Yeah, that could lead to a lot of uh, a lot of different avenues in the future, like oh, through absolutely. the book. Yeah, through- I've, I've got it. You know. <laughs> <laughs> outlines going because I when I here's what happened when I at the time I created the concept I was with a small publisher and um, and I was you know I was really hot to write the book and I wrote part of it and showed him what what I'd written and he said yeah let's go with this and I said I want to do this as a series and he said yeah sure that's great we'll do it as a series and so I wrote the first book, and you know, fastest I've ever written anything. I think I wrote it in about eight weeks, something like that. And almost, wow. it's a pulp. It's a very pulpish narrative, and I wrote it at a pulp speed. You know, because I used to know some of the old pulp writers, and they could turn out a, a novel, and you know, good grief, some of them. Well, you know, there's the old story of Lester Dent. He could write a 60,000-word Doc Savage novel between Friday afternoon and Monday morning. But it wasn't that fast. But a lot of it, I did know several pulp writers, and it wasn't anything for them to, to write a novel in four or five weeks. So it was that kind of fever that I wrote that book in. And I got it to the publisher, and he published it, and it did fairly well but it didn't do well when I was ready to I was already well into the second one he had changed his mind he didn't want to do it anymore so since since he had the rights to the first one I didn't want to shop the second one well basically I couldn't shop the second one around because no publisher would want the first one without I mean the second one without the first one and he wouldn't give me the rights back. So hmm. there it languished. You know, I wasn't going <laughs> to go to all that effort when he had the rights to the first book and, and wouldn't return them. And, uh, but finally he did, which was yeah. you know, several months ago. And I, and I just went ahead and published it myself, which I always swore I would never do that. I'm not into the whole self-publishing thing. It just... I was about as anti-self-publishing as a person can be, but got the rights back. I said, you know, I don't want to run into another situation like I just suffered. So went ahead and published it myself and um, yeah. did much better with me doing it than with than under a micro-publisher imprint. So I'll, I'll do the second yeah. one myself also and then the third, and hopefully I'll just keep doing them. <laughs> so how do you feel about the the way the publishing world's changed does it sort of um do you think it's a good thing or do what, you think self-publishing? it's um, yeah I, I still don't like self-publishing 
I don't like it personally because um, I love to write, but I'm not a salesperson. I'm just not a salesperson. Like, like one time on my blog, I put a picture of um, DeForest Kelly as uh, Bones, and, it, and I <laughs> titled it, I'm a writer, not a salesman, damn it. Because yeah. and that's, that's true. I'm just, I'm just not a salesperson. I've never, I've never done that really. Um, it doesn't appeal to me. I'm not someone who likes to sit in the middle of the room and scream, me, me, me. It's, I just don't like doing that. But if I'm going to self-publish, I've got to do it to a certain extent. But it, but it's not something that appeals to me. So I wish I had a good publisher, you know, who would handle all of that. Like, you know, I've, I've been published by some of the larger houses, and they they do all that. So that was better for me. But um, it's hard to do that anymore because the publishing business isn't what it used to be. You know, I caught the tail end of the old the old model, and uh, and it doesn't exist anymore. Not for me yeah, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think a lot of writers feel that way. I don't think you're alone. No, um, no. Yeah. No. I think that's just how it's changing. And a lot of writers are, are not promoters, even myself. Uh, you know, you can't... It's hard to do the job properly if you're focused on your writing and your life and things like right, that, right? Right, So, you know. I, and um, I realize there are some guys out there who, who are really... like. I do know a, I have a friend who's a writer who's really good at self-promotion, and um, but I think it's it just comes naturally to those people, and, and it's not for me. You know, I just have a hard time handling that part, that aspect of it. Yeah, I can I can write yeah. good copy. I just but I don't. Um, you know, I find oh. it distasteful to have to go out and be a carnival barker. Essentially, so so I've avoided I, yeah. it. Well, I don't blame you. Uh, I agree totally. It's uh, it doesn't feel natural. It seems superficial, you know? right? And, right. And and something about it doesn't work. But some people can do it. You're right. Some right. Yeah. Are, I mean, there's guys out there who are selling, you know, good God, hundreds of thousands of copies every few months of their books and. Uh, they're doing it on the basis of of getting out there and uh, you know squeezing the flesh and shaking hands and talking to people and uh, organizing events and it's just not something I'm, I'm a, you know maybe I would be good at it if I put the effort into it but it doesn't it it, it makes me feel uncomfortable but some people are good at it. Well, I think things are tougher now too with the with the virus and everything that's been going on the last year, and right. and I don't see it changing a whole lot this year anyway. Um, no, no, it's going to be not really. it's probably going to be just as bad this year as it was last year, if not worse, because more people yeah. are are dying from it now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It makes it harder. So I I, I don't see it opening up a whole lot no. either. You see, know. one thing I miss. Um, I, I used to enjoy doing signing events. You know, when I was with traditional publishers, you know, they would call up the stores and arrange for me to do appearances, and that was all out of my hands. That was great, and 
all I had to do was show <laughs> up, and and they, you know, the stores would order X number of copies, and they'd sell the books, and yeah. I would sign them and jibber jabber with the fans, and it was wonderful. But you know, I can't do that anymore, especially with the virus. You can't. There's not that opportunity. I mean, yeah. and that's just part yeah. of it. You know. Yeah. Yeah, I mean it will come around. Hopefully. Oh yeah, yeah. When, maybe in, in next year, in twenty twenty two, there'll be uh, open science fiction conventions and comic conventions and things of that nature, where and, and the bookstores will be having larger events without social distancing, et cetera. We'll see. So I'm not sure. Are you one of those guys that likes to go to those? Comic cons and 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 sci-fi events like Star Trek things and stuff like that, or uh, do you not like those either? I, I like comic conventions. I enjoy comic conventions. I don't enjoy science fiction conventions too much, and there's a big difference. And when I say science fiction conventions, I mean whatever genre of book it is. I, I don't, um, I don't enjoy those as much because you have. <laughs> I think it's at those you have a higher ratio of professional to fan base there's a lot of writers and fewer fans but you go to a comic convention it's a amount of professionals and an enormous amount of fans so you really get to meet the people who who like to you know read either read the things you've written or read the type of thing you've written and then they'll see it and and pick it up and or at least talk to you about it I love talking to people at these events. I, I really, really miss that. <laughs> Hopefully, it comes back. What's 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 the comic world like now? Um, the comic book world, uh, as compared to how it was in the '60s and '70s, and even right through the '90s. Um, yeah. Well, well. Yeah. See the comics. See, I, I don't know how old you. How old are you? Are you? You know, I'm sixty. I'm. I'll be fifty-nine. Okay. Well, you're roughly the same period as I was when we were kids there were just tremendous types of comic books well first of all comic books were written for children they were not written for you know emotionally stunted adults they were written for little kids <laughs> and yeah comic books were everywhere I mean you go into the drugstore there were comic books you go into a grocery store there were comic books you go you know, into a newsstand, there were comic books. You know, there's not even any newsstands anymore, for, for that matter. But yeah. they were everywhere, and they were pervasive. They were exceedingly popular. They were relatively inexpensive, even for the time period. They were not expensive. Most parents didn't have a problem with giving a kid a dime or 12 cents or later 15 cents for a comic book. So... But the main thing was there was every kind of comic book you could, I mean, think of something, and there was a comic book for it. You know, there were comic books based on movies. There were comic books about horses. There were comic books about dogs. There were comic books about policemen. There were, they weren't, you know, superheroes were just a tiny little fraction of what comic books were about. And... Starting in the 1960s, superheroes took over the comic book marketplace. And it's almost like the publishers just threw up their hands and said, okay, we'll 
we're going to forget all of these other types of comics that made the industry and focus on this one thing that's selling like crazy. So it was almost like a self-fulfilling prophecy to make comic books to the point where when people think of the word comic book, they immediately think of Spider-Man or Fantastic Four or Batman or whatever. That's all they think of now is superheroes. And they've forgotten that comic books, you know, used to be Casper the Ghost or, you know, Little Dot or Classics Illustrated or Turok, Son of Stone. I mean, there were comic books for every kind of kid, every little girl and every little boy. There was comic books that appealed to what they liked. And that, that's all gone now. It's just... Um, you know, first of all, there, there's very few comic books done for children. They're very few. So, it, like I said, it's all done for adults who go into the comic book stores, and, plus, and you can't find comic books anywhere else. They're, they're not out there. You can't go into the drugstore, and you don't see them propped up next to the checkout counter at the grocery store. There, there's only one place to go get comics and you know let's face it some of the places are, are kind of creepy yeah <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. well you know actually the the show house of mystery i named after a comic right oh, and yeah. uh see again yeah, a mystery ghost, comic you yeah. know mystery comic there were ghost comics there were horror comics yeah. science fiction comics spaceship comics there was everything. Dark Shadows. Dark Shadows <laughs> had a comic book. I mean, there was no yeah. limit. Hot Rod Comics. Um, there were comic like There was no subject off limits to, you know, comic books for a little kid. If if they wanted a comic book about something, they could find it. You know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, did you, did you like the idea of all these superhero movies and stuff, Marvel, uh, making the big screen? Yeah, yeah, it's it's good. You know, I've, um, I've gotten kind of jaded for them. I don't, I don't go see them anymore because of, I just, you know, they've reached a saturation point for me. Obviously yeah. not for the general public because they're still making tons and tons of money. But but I don't go see them like I, I used to. My son and I, that's one thing we always do is go see movies together. And, um, you know, we both feel like it's just reached a point of, of saturation. Too much. Yeah, I do yeah. like that TV series, The Boys. So I, I get a kick out of that. That's on um, Amazon Prime. So I do watch that. Well, it doesn't take long hmm. to watch it because... You know, has a, what is it, an eight-episode season? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> In just a few days, you've seen them all, and you have to wait another year for them to come out. But, um, yeah. yeah, like the Avengers movies, uh, you know, I've not seen all those and probably won't. I just, I just get bored with it after a while. Yeah, it becomes too much of a formula. Yeah. Know? It's... Uh... It's kind of the, I, I, that's how I feel too. I'm sort of, I'm, uh, take it or leave it. If I see one on the yeah. movie channel, I'll watch it. But I'm certainly not looking for them. And, you know, <laughs> which is too bad. Right. It's too bad when it goes that way. You know? Yeah. And then but, I used to, um, you know, I was heavily involved in the retail aspect. I, you know, I even wrote for the comic industry 
because uh, that was a lifelong obsession. Was you know as soon as I could, I wanted to break into writing comics and finally got my foot in the door at Marvel. And then the editor that I had there who liked my work left Marvel. So you you know when that happens, you have to start over because yeah. your you know your editor is kind of like your champion. And when he left, I had had no champion there anymore, and um, I never could reestablish a connection. And eventually, you know, I continued to write comics, but for smaller companies, and um, never got to the point I wanted to be at. So, but I did get my foot in the door. You know, I can say I, I was published by Marvel Comics. Yeah, no, that's a good thing. Yeah, that was it's fun. A great thing. The, you know, and the money was good for while it lasted, and and uh, mm-hmm. I missed that to a certain extent. Um, yeah, but it's just a complete. You know, it, again, that has changed totally. I mean, I could go to New York City and meet with editors, or even go to the offices, and that doesn't even exist anymore. It's gone. You know, they rolled all that up and moved it into an office in Warner Brothers or whatever. I guess Warner Brothers. No, Disney. Disney, Disney in uh, yeah. California. So that's where their offices are now. And, um, you know, all the old pros I knew from those days, they're all either retired or dead. <laughs> <laughs> And then a lot of the editors, they're not involved in comics anymore. They're, they're doing other things. So it's just completely, I wouldn't even know where to begin if I wanted to. And so that's why, uh, that's one reason I write uh, working class hero books. Because, you know, I keep my hand in and, and I get a kick out of it. I really like writing that story. And I, and I hope to be doing it for a while because... I've got several of them plotted out, and like I said, the you know the next, the second one should have been out a long time ago, but I put the stop the skids on it because you know who was going to. I still had hopes of finding a publisher, but who was going to publish part two when part one was owned by a nif- different company? Yeah. So I had to, yeah, I had to stop work on it, yeah. and that was when I you know. I took that time to finish The Emissary, which is a horror novel. And now that I've got the rights back to Working Class Hero, I'm trying to finish the second one, which shouldn't be too long. When you get into the horror and you write that, uh, do you like old classic horror or do you, or do you like the modern stuff? Mm. Um, it, it depends on how far back you go to say old Um <laughs> yeah, you know, I, I I like the type of stuff that has come out since you know guys like Stephen King and Carl Edward Wagner and that lot. They, you know, that's more attuned to what I enjoy reading. Um, but I like old stuff too. Um, but it's hard to find horror that, that is actually frightening. You know, I, I read a lot of it. You know, I, I'm not going to say who or what, cause, but a lot of what I read 
is uh, just does. I mean, it's, it's decent writing, it's mechanically good writing, but it doesn't scare me. I can't tell you when the last time a, a horror novel scared me. So, but do you think that's because you're? I'm probably jaded. jaded. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, once you've been through it, like you know, if you're watching or reading something from the '60s that, and after you've been through so much. Yeah, and seen and and read so much, I would think that that would sort of so things don't surprise you as much. They don't right, right. But every once in a while, like uh, I read a, a Fritz Leiber short story not too long ago, and uh, you know he wrote it, I guess back in the fifties, and uh, boy, it was scary. You know, it was genuinely unsettling and creepy. So even old stuff can surprise you if you if you've not run across it. And I had never read that story. I was like, oh, gosh, that's a pretty, pretty darn good story. So you never know what you're going to encounter. More of the mental horror than... Um... Yeah, yeah, that. And But to me, a horror story is not complete if you don't feel some kind of physical dread. You know, if it's all, you know, on a mental or spiritual level. It might not be as effective. You know, you have to feel some physical dread, <laughs> to me, for for it to be <laughs> right, effective. Right. Um, no, that, that makes when, sense. Um, when we were assembling, Hippocampus Press published a collection of my short stories, a, con- a confederacy of horrors. And when I was assembling the stories for them to include... Um, I was surprised how many ghost stories I had written. I had never thought about it before. And then uh, I really, you know, I've always found ghosts to be particularly creepy. And uh, and so a good ghost story actually, you know, can actually scare me. Monsters generally don't be monster stories. But if there's a, you know, a supernatural metaphysical aspect to a story, if the author knows how to handle it right, yeah, those those are scary. Is it because you have a sense of real with ghosts? Do you have like a, a, a spirit sort of thing that you... Well, I have a it, sense. It gives you fear? It's a, it's, a, it's a sense of the unreal. It's the unreal part that is frightening because I don't believe oh, in ghosts. Okay. I, just, I just don't believe in them, which I right. know is ironic that they would be it would be my favorite type of horror fiction, but it's my disbelief in them that makes a well-written horror story, ghost story, effective because the writer is making me suspend, you know, my disbelief for a second and thinking of what it would be like if that damn thing was real. And uh, Yeah, I guess I, I never thought of it that way. I always thought it would be something, you know, you're not scared of monsters because, you know, they're, they're no. just not real. But right, right. But ghosts if you don't think they're real then it wouldn't scare you i i would think that would have the opposite effect but that's right well wow. it was like uh, um my first big novel you know first novel that i sold to a, an actual you know a big publishing house was based on the it was on based on the premise of cryptozoology you know animals that exist that nobody knows about and in the, in this case, they were giant predatory birds. And so when I wrote the 
novel, first thing I had to do, okay, this is a cool animal to put in a in a horror novel or a suspense novel. When I was first marketing it, I called it an ecological suspense novel. And um, when I was pitching it to different publishers, and uh, but I had to come, you know, how can there be an eight foot tall, predatory, flightless ground bird walking around in Florida and no one has seen it? It's like Bigfoot. How can there be an eight foot tall ape cruising around in the forest in North America and no one's ever seen one? You know, it's sure. impossible. So you have to come up with reasons why this could actually exist. And so that's what I did. I sat down and tried to figure out how can this thing exist and no one's seen it. Or when I say thing, there's lots of them because you have to have a breeding population. And um, so that's what I did, and that's what people liked about it when it came out. It was, you know, it was well-received because there was a sense of logic behind why this thing could be out there and, uh, and doing its thing and eventually killing people. So that's what I wow. look to, that's what I look to do when, you know, when I sit down to write, I try to, when it's something like that, that's horror oriented, you, you have, even with illogic, you have to build a mythology that makes some sense. You have to build logic where, you know, where there's not logic. And that's your book, The Flock, that you're talking about, That's right? The Flock, yeah. That was the one that Warner Brothers optioned. When the, and that's a funny story. You know, I, I uh, was online, and I'm not known for diplomacy or tact. And I was on the, <laughs> I was on the bulletin board, and uh, who was it? Eddie Campbell, who was the artist on Alan Moore's book, From Hell, about Jack the Ripper. I was on his bulletin board, and... Right. They were. We were discussing the movie, and there were parts of that movie that I did not like. And um, and I mentioned the parts, and I think I said it was the scenes were a piece of crap or something like that. And uh, I didn't know the movie producer was online; that he was one of the people I was talking to. So he got angry, you know, that I had disparaged his movie. And I hadn't disparaged the entire movie, just these particular scenes. And uh, so he got real upset. And um, what happened was he went out and he bought a copy of The Flock so that he could rake me over the coals authoritatively. <laughs> you know, he, he was going to pick out every flaw he could find and, and give me a hard time about it online. And instead of that, he ended up loving the book and, and bought the rights. Well, he didn't buy the rights. He optioned the rights from me. Right. So that was a hilarious story in and of itself. <laughs> well, maybe that's how you should be marketing yourself. You should find people and <laughs> put down their work. Yeah, I told, I was And when they go to get you back. If I ever met uh, you know, Spielberg, I'd say, you suck, Spielberg. <laughs> With the hope yeah. that uh, you know the same thing would repeat itself, but um, it was you know it was just a funny story, and I've had other people interested in other projects, but that's that's the furthest along any of my work has ever come to actually making it into a movie, and it came close, 
Someone like you, okay, so working class guy, just yeah. like just like all of us really right. here. Um, how did you um, gain confidence to actually think that you would be able to be published and write? Like, where does that come from? Just stubbornness, you know. Okay. I just started writing, just stubborn, okay. I started writing stories when I was eight years old, and, um, you know, they were just little, goofy little kid stories, and I just kept at it and kept at it and wrote little short novels. And whatever period I was cruising through as a kid, like I think my first story I ever wrote was um, was probably a Godzilla story. And then a Dr. Doolittle story, et cetera, et cetera. And when I got into high school, I was writing stories about animals. And, and then... When I first got married, I said, okay, i got to quit playing around and get serious. And uh, so, and I did. I got serious. I sat down and figured out what kind of stories that I like to read. And I'll try to write those kind of stories. And what was it, you know, I started to pick those stories apart. What, you know, how was it, how did the writer do that? I'm going to see if I can... Do I never imitated anyone. I don't, you know, I write in a kind of a matter-of-fact style. So I wasn't imitating, you know, H.P. Lovecraft or Ray Bradbury or Joe Lansdale or anything like that, which is what a lot of people do, and they fall into a trap doing that. But um, I just wanted to pick apart what they were doing, not how they were doing it. And uh, And after a little while, I started to... You know, you, you start small, you sell the little semi-prosines for a penny or two a word, and then you know, just moved up the ladder until I was selling stories to um, respectable marketplaces. This whole story to Weird mag- weird Tales and places like that. Started out with um, Mark Rainey's Death Realm magazine, sold several stories to him, and and just kept going, and then when I got enough confidence, not just writing but selling short stories, then I started to write novels. And wrote it on it. Gosh, I'm hmm. trying to remember what the flock was. I think it was my third novel before I before I sold one. And see, this was back in the days when you could. There was no self publishing. It just well, I mean, well, self publishing was the was for the biggest losers, you know, because it costs a lot of money to, you know, you've got to go out and pay five or $10,000 to publish, you know, not even that many copies of a book. It wasn't easy to do. And then trying to sell those, you know, how were you going to distribute those books? It was just, that was, and I'm, I use that term because most of the professional writers I knew in those days said self-publishing is for schmucks and losers. Don't don't even think about it. And that was the days yeah. before it, the internet made it easy to self-publish. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. there is still it, it has opened it up for a lot of those losers. Um, oh, oh, absolutely. There's there some really bad stuff out. Oh, know, oh, yeah. Um, I mean, one reason yeah. I hated and and, you know, lobbied against self-publishing for so long was I kept reading it, and I couldn't read any of it. It was awful, you know, and it was about, it took me about three years before I finally found a self-published book that was readable. 
So, yeah, that was yeah. you know it really soured me to the concept of self-publishing because so much, almost all of it is horrible. Yeah, it's awful. Yeah. Just the worst of the worst. It's the stuff that used <laughs> to come across the slush pile in publishers that <laughs> you know you discouraged that person or told them what they were doing wrong or something of that nature. And uh, you never heard from them again. Well, that's not the case now. Everybody yeah. hears. I forget how many books are self-published now on you know all of these platforms. You know, especially Amazon. How many self-published yeah. books do they I, publish yeah, every year? It's it's insane. It's, yeah. Somebody and told me it's, it's in the millions. Yeah. I, I guess. Yeah. You know, worldwide. Yeah. It's, so yeah. how do you, you know, again, how do you um, fight through that flood of self-published dreck when you have a decent book? It's very hard well, to do. Yeah, it's I mean, terrible. It's, uh, yeah. yeah. I used to be friends with um, the writer Billy Sue Mossaman, who passed away a few years ago. And, uh, you know, she was a widely published writer, very respected, had a good career as a mid-list writer and um, well, you know for some reason she decided she would self-publish some stuff and and she did great I mean she was making decent money by self-publishing and um, but then the market got flooded and she saw her sales just plummet I mean they went to nothing she you know like she would publish a book and make twenty, thirty thousand dollars off the book, and then a couple of years later, she would publish one of her books, and nobody was buying them. She couldn't make, you know, two hundred dollars off of them. Yeah, and it was because the market was diluted. It was just completely diluted. There was just so many, many thousands of titles coming out every month, and how do you? distinguish your books from from that other stuff and, and you know it's a puzzle how do you do it I've, I've, no, it's tough well, yeah i was lucky with working class hero for some reason you know i can sell enough copies to make doing another one you know hopefully a profitable proposition and a third one yeah. and a fourth one because you know that was one thing i wanted to do i wanted it to be like a comic book you know, a periodical comic book came out every month, and I don't want to come out with a book every month. It's, <laughs> you know, I'm not Lester Dent, but um, yeah. but I do want to come out with one or two a year, and uh, and I have fun writing them. I just have, you know, I had so much fun writing the first one, and I'm having a blast writing the second one, and I'm going to have a good time writing the third one, which is already plotted. So, you know, that was. You know, I want to be able to do that. So, yeah, I just I, I did get lucky with promoting that first book. So, hopefully, I can uh, do it again. Yeah, you know. Um, so, um, do you have a website or a blog or something set up yeah. where people can come find you? I, I did have a James Robert Smith website, but it was just I wasn't getting any. I wasn't generating any um, interest that way. It was just it was just like there, and there was yeah. no feedback from it. So, I, I do have a blog 
called Till the Last Hemlock Dies, which covers, you know, all of my interests, you know, photography, backpacking, kayaking, hiking, wildlife photography, you know, writing. Um, so I do that. Hmm. And, uh, okay. But I don't, we'll I don't have, have that a, up. Yeah, Till the Last Hemlock Dies is... And it's on yeah. Blogger, it's on Blogspot. But um, but okay. I don't, because of Facebook, I don't pay as much attention to the blog as I used to because I can communicate with people on Facebook, you know, really easy. Whereas yeah. Yeah. your blog is hit or miss. You know, I, I'll check how many hits a day it gets. and <laughs> I, uh, I had one blog post and the the um the hits just went through the ceiling. It was like fifteen thousand hits. I was like, where did the heck did that come from? I couldn't figure it out because it was just a typical blog post. To me it was not even a particularly you know, it was just average to me. I couldn't figure out it was some movie reviews I'd done. And I'm like, why did that thing hit fifteen thousand hits? So I read it line by line to see what was there, and I had written a comedy little sentence, and it said in one of the pieces in the sentence was, um, Jennifer Connelly naked, <laughs> N-E-K-K-I-D, <laughs> and it was just it was just a toss off joke, but the internet search picked up Jennifer Connelly naked, and fifteen thousand. <laughs> You know, schlubs linked onto yeah. my website thinking they were going to see a naked photograph of Jennifer Connelly. Oh my God! Well, you know, now you know how to do it. That's how you promote the books. <laughs> yeah. There you go. You just got to yeah, put that in put, your wording. Yeah, I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll just slap that in there and get fifteen thousand hits in a day. Yeah, so. then they'll everybody be coming seeing your book, looking for a <laughs> right. naked naked woman, and, <laughs> right. and it's not exactly. But at least you get the exposure, right? It's like I a, should, yeah, I should like put the first line in bold, you know, yeah. naked. <laughs> uh, uh, that might be a good idea. I might I might steal that for you. Uh, there, I'll get I'll get on that. You know. Um, no, it's it's interesting. Yeah, you don't know what people are going to do and. It's kind of crazy. It's 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 kind of a free for all, really. You know, just gambling. Um, certainly, you know. Um, did, has this um, coronavirus and all this stuff sort of affected your writing? Do you find that um, you you can't write or you slows you down or? Um, I, I could write, but actually, my production has fallen off because um, you know. I can't go and see. I, normally, I'm very active. I'm very, very active. I'm, I'm constantly doing something outside of. I'm generally I'm I'm on a trail backpacking somewhere and sleeping under the, in my tent on the Appalachian. Well, I don't like the Appalachian Trail, but but Appalachian Trail type of situation. I'll be in a national park or wilderness area. Or I'll just be hiking. I'll go somewhere and climb a mountain, and, and uh, or go kayaking. I, you know, I'm constantly yeah. busy, physically busy, and um, 
the coronavirus has made right. that difficult. You know, for a while you couldn't even do that. They, you know, they shut down the national forests and the parks. I couldn't even go hiking. And that's loosened up somewhat, but um, I, I'm not getting as much activity as I should. So um, I exercise around the house a lot in, the, you know, the neighborhood. I can still do one-mile walks around the neighborhood. So I think maybe just being depressed from not being able to do the things outside yeah. has has cut down on my production. I still write every day, but not as much as I used to. I don't get the word production that I, I used to get. A lot of people feel that way. I, isn't it, you're not alone. I think this, you know, we, we come across that a lot. Oh, so. oh yeah. You yeah. know, I talk to people who do um, suicide prevention. I got friends who are into that, and <clears throat> they said, you know, this is this is a busy time for them. They get lots of phone calls and. Yeah, they have to work with a lot of people, and um, yeah, I'd imagine. Well, yeah, well, so well, I was just going to say it's um, you know you know our time on the show is running out, but it's been a real okay. pleasure. And um, now we've been talking about working class hero, and we've had James Robert Smith, author, on. Thank you for being on the show. I appreciate you calling, giving me the opportunity. Find out more about our show, guests, or to listen to past shows from our archive, please go to www.houseofmysteryradio.com. Show's over for now. Was it as good for you as it was for me? Well, good night. This has been a production of Something Weird Media. I'll be back.